0: Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. So we live in a pretty difficult world. We have a lot of hardships. Going into a new year, 2024, seven days in, and a lot of people go in with high expectations, this year's going to be better than last year. Uh, in fact, I saw on social media, one of my friends had said, oh, post the Lord of the Rings gif. That's how it's pronounced, not, not GIF. gif. <laughs> post the Lord of the Rings gif that... Um, uh, that, that best describes your energy going into 2024. And everyone's got all these battle ones and cries and there's a billion of them. And, and I posted the one of, of Bilbo where he says, I feel like I'm too little butter spread over bread. (laughs) Just, uh, I can't make it happening. And then everyone's like, yeah, that, that one's the case. Because the reality is our lives are difficult. You all have difficulties. You all have hardships. The turning of the calendar does not change that. We have struggles. We have hardships. In fact, so much so, there's a short story that Pulitzer Prize award-winning Catherine Ann Porter wrote this in her short story, The Necessary Enemy, back in 1948. Out of these sufferings, we salvage our fragments of happiness. Wow. I mean, okay, for those of you who are very positive, that's like, man, that is really negative. But that is the reality, isn't it? Where it's like, man, life is so hard and so difficult, and let me just try and find these little fragments of joy, these little fragments of happiness that I can find because life is so hard and is so trying and it is so difficult. How can we find joy? How can we find joy in this hard and difficult world? when your finances are in the toilet, when, when, your, when your relationships are torn asunder, when your health or the health of a loved one is not what it should be, how can we find joy? So as we go back into the Old Testament of 1 Samuel, this is the time of the judges, the chaotic time, where God was supposed to be the king of Israel. But oftentimes, Israel did not listen. There were judges who were appointed to represent God to the people. Often they were not listened. Sometimes the judges were good. Sometimes they were not good. And it's within that chaotic, almost anarchist time that we find this text. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man... Ramathine Zorphan of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Joraham, son of Elihu, son of Toho, son of Zuf, and Eph, um, Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were priests of the Lord. Okay, so right off from the beginning, uh, there's a lot thrown at us here. So we have this man Elkanah, and the text kind of sets him up. This is a person who follows God, uh, the Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God. Anytime in The Old Testament, you see the Lord all in caps. That is a stand-in for the tetragrammaton, the three letter, or the four letters, excuse me, of the perfect personal name of God. And that is Yahweh. He follows him. He goes to Shiloh. Shiloh was the capital of Israel before it was changed to Jerusalem. He goes to where the tent of meeting was. That was the temple before the temple. He goes to worship God. He is faithful. But the text right off the the top of it, he it starts off with a problem. Verse 2, he had two wives. Now, sometimes you are going to run across people who will say, wow, the Bible supports polygamy, or the Bible supports this this untraditional marriage thing, because you see polygamy all throughout the Bible. No, Um, that is only a cursory reading of the text. Anytime you see polygamy mentioned, (laughs) it is always a problem. Later on today, you can go through the Old Testament, and I double-dog dare you, find me a text where polygamy is presented and there isn't a problem associated with it. You're not going to find it. You're not going to. You're also not going to find a text that God says, oh, polygamy is horrible. No, what you find is is God understands how our hearts work and he understands narrative literature, unlike us 21st century uh, Westerners. It's (laughs) every time polygamy is shown, there is a problem. There is always a problem and there is no difference of that today. He had two wives. The name was, first name was Hannah, and the other was Panina. Panina had children. Hannah had no children, but he would go up and worship. So what, what is God doing here? Well, God tolerated it. God tolerated it, right? He didn't say, wow, that's, I'm going to just zap you all, and it's going to be... He tolerated it like he tolerates a lot of my personal sins, like he tolerates a lot of your personal sins. If God was to bring immediate judgment when I sin and you sin, none of us would be here. <laughs> so he, he tolerates it. It's not his ideal. It wasn't his ideal from the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. It's not his ideal according to Jesus in the Gospels. It's not his ideal according to the prophets. It's not his ideal according to uh, the epistles. And the apostles. But God tolerated it. He tolerated it. Even though it was not helpful. So you think about Hannah, and it says she was childless. Now, in in our culture, that's not necessarily seen as a negative thing. In their culture, it was a super negative thing. For in an, a largely agrarian society, a man would marry a woman, and they would start having kids as soon as possible. Why? Because as many kids as you can have, then, you know, within a few years, they can start becoming farmhands and helping you out. Also, the more kids you had, the bigger your clan would become, and the more you would perpetuate your name, and the more allies you had to support you in a very harsh, violent world. And so for culturally, so um, women would see their role as, I've got to have kids, i got to have kids, i got to have kids. And Elkanah, you have to imagine, he married Hannah, and after a year, no kids, two years, no kids, three years, no kids. And he made a choice. It was a socially acceptable choice in his culture. It wasn't a moral one. It wasn't a right one. It wasn't one that honored his wife. But he made a choice, and he married another woman. It was accepted by his culture, even though it was not helpful to anyone, to his own soul or to anyone else's. And this new wife, man, she just starts cranking out kids. I don't know how many kids. It was at least four because later on it says uh, sons and daughters. So, you know, that's how plurals work, son at least two and daughters at least two. So she's she's got four. She probably has more than four. Maybe she's got a whole baseball team. Meanwhile, here's Hannah. She doesn't have any. You know what this is like, maybe uh, not exactly, but but when someone makes a decision that hurts you but benefits somebody else, right? They make a decision that benefits them and hurts you. So if you're working at a job, you have a big project, and one of your coworkers calls out (coughs) sick, not legitimately sick, there are people who are sick, you know, (laughs) when you're sick, call out. But there are people that that they're like, "Eh, I'm overwhelmed. I don't feel like going in. And I know the whole team is working hard, and they're going to have to work harder. I don't care. I have to have a me day. So they call out, (laughs) sick. That hurts you. They benefit, and it harms you. Within a family, you can have a father who just decides, you know what? I, um, I deserve to spend my money. And it could be on something not sinful necessarily, but he decides to buy a, a car that the family can't afford. He decides to buy a, a signature set of, uh, of knives that the family can't afford. They can get really expensive, guys. Uh, I knew a guy, he was up in the middle of the night watching like QVC, and they had like a bunch of swords, and, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to buy all these swords. <laughs> right? But if the dad buys way above the family budget, and now there's not enough money for, for rent, for mortgage payment, for the car payment, for food, that's a problem. He benefits while others hurt. How can we find joy in the midst of this? But it's not just Elkanah who is the problem. On verse 4, it says, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Okay, so you've experienced difficulties, right, where you try to start a new business and it fails, you buy a new car, and it's just junk. Or you get your car repaired, and it's still not working. Uh, you, yeah, but you're like, okay, you know, this happens in life. Maybe you get married to someone you're not entirely sure about, and the marriage falls apart. And you're like, okay, this is, you know, this is hard. You make choices in life, and sometimes those choices come back, and it doesn't work out fine. But for Hannah, it's even worse. Because it's not just that she got married to this guy and it didn't work out. And it's not just that she's infertile and can't have children. What does it say? It says the Lord had closed her womb. So her husband makes a decision that hurts her. And now we find out it's not just her husband and it's not just her biology. God is not allowing her to have children. How can you find joy in the face of that? Verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it says it twice just to reiterate the point. Verse 7. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. This is the section of the text. I have to pause here and say, every time I present this text to any group, uh, the women will come to me afterwards and say that I don't understand women. And I confess to you, I do not understand women, okay? Uh, every time I've talked with this, this, about this uh, group, all around the world, actually. There's, uh, afterwards, someone will say, you don't understand women. So the reason Panina was, was provoking Hannah was because Panina saw that Hannah was given a double portion and that Elkanah loved her more. All right, they all got one fruit snack and Hannah got two. <laughs> that's not fair. And then other, and so I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. So I'll make that point And then the other women will come up after and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, she's got all these kids that she's taking care of, and she feels alone, so she, you know, like, okay, I got I don't understand women. I'm I'm not going to be able to understand women. There's lots of um, books written about uh, men not understanding women. Uh, At the end of the day, though, (laughs) the only point I want to make here is uh, the text makes Hannah the protagonist, so she's the main character. So everyone else is secondary. Uh, Panina probably felt justified to... um, be angry at Hannah. I understand that. Uh, but uh, but Hannah is driving the story here. So Panina used to provoke her and irritate her because she didn't have kids. So it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. So she gets a double portion, still doesn't eat. Can you imagine that being Hannah? When you have failures in your life to have someone rub it in your face. Like, imagine you raise your kids, not perfectly, none of us are perfect parents, but you try and raise your kids as best you can, and then they grow up and they break your heart and they start making really bad decisions. Do you know how hard that is? I mean, it's gut-wrenching. And then to have someone rub it in your face. One of the things growing up, I I remember uh, listening to Christian radio, and there was a radio program on, and I was listening to it. And I'm like, man, I'm going to be a great parent because I have heard all of these things on the radio program. And what I didn't realize is the implicit message, no one actually said this out loud, but the implicit message was that you parent are the sole arbiter on how your kid turns out. And if your kid makes bad choices, gets whose fault that is. It's yours. But you know what? That's not true. It's not biblical. Why? Well, there's a number of factors in how a kid turns out, right? There is parenting. God also has a say. The kid also has a say. And the culture they live in also has influence. So to have that false guilt, right? And I can't tell you how many times I've talked as a pastor over the last, what is it, 24 years now, I- I've talked with parents and they're like, we've messed up and oh, and why?" You know, all this stuff. And And I have to counsel them and say, guys, you loved your kid. You loved They made their choices. Don't hold on to this guilt. And And then they will quote me, and they'll name some name, a big name, bigger than I'll ever be. And they'll say, well, he says this is why this happens. When this happens, it's the father's fault. When this happens, it's the mother's fault. So it must be ours. Can you imagine that? You're already hurting. You're already grieving your child's sin, and now you feel guilt just heaped upon you. How can we find joy? Poor Hannah. It gets worse. Verse 8, And Elkanah, her husband, so Elkanah, the husband, he sees this happening, situation that he's created himself, and he says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? (laughs) <laughs> like, all the women are smiling like, that idiot. What? Well, if you're married or you have a significant other, try that with your significant other, right? When they're upset about something in life, say, you know what? Aren't I more important than anything else in the world? <laughs> See how they respond. It's not going to go well for you. <sighs> Elkin's marriage seminar, oh, my word. People say stupid stuff in the middle of our pain, don't they? Don't they? Oh my goodness, they really do. To be very transparent, uh, very vulnerable, I guess is the right term. Uh, Kristen and I, we've we've suffered two miscarriages um, in our marriage. And if you've ever gone through that, it is horrible. It's horrible. It is like... um, as soon as you get that positive pregnancy test, you are a parent. And to lose a child, it's death. It's loss. And it hurts. And then, the first miscarriage, we had people say things that were utterly ridiculous, and uh, I'm not a violent person, but I've never wanted to punch someone so much so in my life. You know, I had one friend, a friend, a good friend. He said, you know what, um, when, when uh, we had our miscarriage, we realized it was the best thing that could ever happen to us. We didn't want a kid right then. So it's probably for the best that you lost this child. Wow. But people say, well, you're still young. You can have more kids. Yeah, that, that, that may be true. It may not be true. I still have a dead baby, and I'm grieving this child. People will say absolutely dumb things. Or sometimes they'll quote you scripture in a dumb way. Romans 8. Well, you know what, Nathan? God works all things for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus, which is a very true text. But you know what? When someone's grieving, that is not the time to quote that text because every time I've ever been quoted that text or I've heard someone quote it to someone else in the midst of their grief, you know what the secret message that someone is saying? Suck it up. Just deal with it. God's going to have a great deal. Why are you crying? You know, just, God's got plans for you. No, I'm grieving right now. Sit with someone in their grief. Maybe read Psalm 23. Maybe read Psalm 13. Correct my theology later. And here Elkanah, she is grieving. And he says, aren't I worth more than 10 sons to you? ho. How can we find joy when you have that? When everything is against you, when your life is crushed, when your life is pressed, when it seems like everyone is fighting against you and keeping you down. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk and Shiloh Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. So Eli is the high priest over Israel, so he has a lot of spiritual authority. He is also the judge over Israel, so he has a lot of authority. He is the guy who God is supposed to speak through and tell the people what God's will is for their lives. Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Hannah was deeply depressed and distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. That last section, no razor shall touch his head. In the Torah, if you were uh, dedicating yourself to God, uh, it's the uh, Nazarite vow. You would make this vow where you would not uh, ever cut your head. You wouldn't do that either. Cut your hair. <laughs> and, uh, and you would never uh, drink wine. And that was a vow that you were setting yourself apart from God. That, that's what Samson had. It wasn't a guarantee for superpowers, but you know, Sam, Samson got them. Uh, so that, that's what that, that line is about. What's Hannah doing here? You know what Hannah's doing here? She's so miserable. She's trying to find joy any way she can. She's playing, let's make a deal with God. Anyone ever play, let's make a deal with God? God, if you do this, then I will do that. I remember my, one of my Sunday school teachers, Al Smith, who's gone home to be with the Lord, he, he said, man, he, uh, he had a heart attack. He was in the hospital and he played, let's make a deal with God. His whole family was Christians. They would always go to church every morning. He never went there. And uh, he, was, he was in the hospital and man, he, they, they said, we don't know if you're gonna make it through this. And he played, let's make a deal with God. God, if you... Heal me and let me walk out of this hospital. I will go to church every Sunday. Let's make a deal with God. Anyone ever do that before? God, if you get me this job, then I will do this. God, if you allow me to have these finances, then I will tithe 10%. God, 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 I, if you do this, then I will do that. If you get, allow me to marry this person, if you allow me to get a date with this person, then I will serve you in such a way. Anyone ever do that before? Let's make a deal with God. I've played let's make a deal with God. I still play let's make a deal with God. The weird thing with this text, though, is Hannah's playing it wrong. Usually you say, God, give me this, and I will give you that. That is not how she's playing the game. What does she say? I will give, but if you will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. What? Give me what I want, and then I'll give it back to you. That's not how you play let's make a deal with God. God, can you give me a million dollars, and then I will tithe it back to the church? That's, why, why? That's not, let's make a deal with God. That's very magnanimous of you, thank you, if you want to make that deal with God, and if he falls through, fine. But that's not how you play the game. She got it totally wrong. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli, remember the high priest, the judge, took her To be a drunken woman and eli said to her how long will you go on being drunk put your wine away from you wow everyone is hard on hannah her husband her husband's wife that's weird to say out loud god who closed her womb and now the high priest the person who should recognize when someone is praying versus when someone is drunk can't even tell the difference, and he's hard on her. Imagine you're in a funeral for a loved one, and you're crying, you're grieving, and the pastor comes up to you and just says, stop getting drunk. Whoa, 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 I'm crying because my loved one just died. You can't, you can't get a break. She can't get a break. How can you find joy in this miserable dark world? Verse 15. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered her, Oh, 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 go in peace. The God of Israel, grant your petition. That you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Do you see how desperate she is? Like, she was given words by the high priest, so so you know, a celebrity, powerful man, but she was given just words. Okay, let it happen, happen to you. A guy who couldn't even discern if she was drunk or praying, and she gets words from this guy, and she holds on to them. And so she's finally like, okay, I'm not depressed anymore. This is how desperate she is. And if God answers, what should she do? Hold on to that blessing. If you have nothing, you need to hold on to whatever you have in this life. You need to salvage those fragments of happiness in the middle of our misery, right? Verse 19, they, being Elkanah and his family, rose early in the morning, worshiped before Yahweh. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. Pause right there. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. So they they slept together. That's just a polite way of saying that. Can you imagine the anticipation on Hannah, the, the anxiety on Elkanah. Over and over and over again, they have tried, and they have failed. I was talking to some of my students in Vietnam about this text, and I said, can you imagine what they were experiencing in that moment? And one student, she raised his hand, and he says, I don't think we should imagine what's happening right there. <laughs> All right, fair point. Imagine the emotionality of what's happening the futility of this all. She is barren. She can't have kids. She's infertile. And the second part of verse 19, and the Lord remembered her. This, when when the Bible says the Lord remembered, it doesn't just mean like God thought like, oh, I remember, I I forgot to put the bun in the oven. Here, let's put the bun in the oven. Yes, that was an implied pun. Uh, (laughs) It was really bad. It's not that God was forgetful. When God remembers in the Bible, it means he has taken action. God remembered her. When Kristen and I became pregnant for the first time after after our first miscarriage, we were infertile for, I don't know, seven, eight years, and then when we found out we were pregnant, I uh, very passive-aggressively posted on social media just this text, and God remembered her. And Everyone's like, oh, yeah, wait, great. No, and he figured out what it was until you know, a few months later when we announced that we were pregnant. God remembered her. And in due time, verse 20, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Hannah played. Let's make a deal with God. How often do we follow through on our Let's make a deal with God plans? Uh, my Sunday school teacher, Al Smith, he he was telling us while we were in Sunday school. He says, "Yeah, I played that game. Let's make a deal with God. God got me back up to health. I came back home." He said, and then I was just a miserable person at home for months and months. He did not go to church. His whole family would go, and every time they went, he remembered that vow that he had made to God, and he's just like, "Eh." It probably was the doctors that got me through this. So he just discounted it for the longest time. But fortunately, Al Smith and Hannah went through with their vow. Verse 21, the man in Elkanah and all of his household went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and obey his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Wow. Now, now when it says she weaned, we're thinking like maybe a year, maybe two at the most. Back in those times, they tended to nurse until maybe three, maybe five years old. So he'd be a toddler at this time. So she wouldn't go up and worship until the child was weaned and would be able to be taken care of by, you know, someone who is not nursing him. And so, so for three, four, five years, she doesn't go. Why in the world... How can we find joy in this life? Hold on to whatever you're giving. God gave her this child. Hold on to it. This is her only blessing. Her husband doesn't understand her. She has a rival wife who constantly ridicules her and belittles her with her monster children, presumably, who are also participating. Now she's got to protect this kid. No, you hold on to whatever you have. She has nothing else. She doesn't have anyone that understands her. She doesn't have anyone in her court. Hold on to what you have. Don't give it away. Hold on on, Anna. How can you find joy? Hold on to it. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So is no use. He thinks she's crazy. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with the three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to Yahweh. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And he worships the Lord there. What is good about this text? I mean, we're going to find out in weeks ahead, Eli is just this massively huge buffoon. He's physically massive because of of, uh, ill-gotten gains, we find out. We find out that he is an absolutely incompetent parent. In fact, the the writer of 1 Samuel hinted us to that where he said, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were the priests of the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas are his children. So anyone who had any context knew that these were worthless priests, not only worthless priests, absolutely evil priests. And and Eli did nothing to bring his children in and to stop, he's the only person who could have stopped their evil, and he did nothing. So he's an incompetent parent. He is a buffoon who does not recognize the difference between drunkenness and prayer. And she is handing over this little three, four, five-year-old. I mean, he's a toddler. You know how great toddlers are? They sleep through the night usually, right? Or if they get up, maybe only once. That's fantastic. You know how awesome it is to talk to toddlers? Years ago, as a pastor, I was just going through the church, and this one toddler comes up to me, and she goes, Pastor Nathan. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, you know what? I had this really good thought I needed to share with you. I'm like, oh, great. I'm waiting for some depthful theological thing. And she says, I think monkeys are like French fries to alligators. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was like, Okay, why? Meanwhile, there's a line of people wanting to talk to me. We're, we spent like 20 minutes talking about this. And she's like, well, you know, alligators, they normally eat bigger things like hippos. Those are like the burgers to them. But the monkeys, they're just these small little things. So it's like the French fries. Like maybe they get happy meals. They get open them. Like just going on about this. Toddlers are amazing. They're fantastic. They're goofy. They're weird. They're fun. And Hannah is giving this child who is talking, calling her mama over to a stranger he has never met and to stay with him for the rest of his life. You talk to foster parents when they have to give up their kids to go into foster, to to a visit with the people that abuse them. And you want to talk about manifestations of hell on earth? That's right there. I have two good friends. They, uh, they fostered a little child from basically the hospital for three, four years. And then for whatever reason, the judge des- decided to give the child back to the birth mom. And uh, the birth mom took the child, went out of state, and within less than two weeks was living out of a car with the kid. Nothing good comes from giving up a child, a toddler. There's nothing good about that situation. There isn't. How can we find joy in this miserable world? Hannah just gave up the only thing that God had ever blessed her with. And here's what's crazy. Chapter 2 happens. It's unreal. How do you suppose Hannah is walking away from Shiloh, right, as her son is going, Mom, 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 right? What what would you, moms, dads, what would you do? Mom, Dad, Mom, Dad, why are you guys leaving me here with this? old fat priests. What's going on? Right? How is Hannah going away? She's crying. How do I respond to that? I'm crying. How are you responding? You're crying. This is terrible. This is awful. You're depressed. You're sad. You're filled with anxiety. You feel like throwing up. It's so awful. How does Hannah respond? It doesn't make any sense. Chapter two, verse one. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. All of a sudden she's filled with joy. It doesn't make any sense. She says, There is none holy like the Lord and there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more, so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven children, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. The Lord makes The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his kings and exalt the horn of his anointed. What? What? How did Hannah find joy? She experienced undiluted joy and rapturous understanding of God. She understood Joy when she gave Samuel her only blessing back to God. How can we experience joy? We can experience joy when we dedicate our biggest blessings to the Lord. By giving what we have and saying, God, whatever I have, it is yours. Do with it what you will. That is counterintuitive, isn't it? That doesn't make any sense. In fact, it doesn't make any sense because verse 11, this natural unit of Scripture ends with this, then Elkanah went home to (laughs) Ramah. You just get this picture, Elkanah's seeing this whole scene, right? He's like, man, this is going to be horrible coming home. She's going to give this child away. She's not going to give the child away. It's not going to happen. She gives the child away. Child's crying, wants her back. And she is over here. She starts singing worship songs, prayerful, praising worship songs. And Elkanah is like, I married a crazy woman. That's what happened. I married a crazy woman. This is what's going on. He doesn't understand. It says, and Elkanah went home to Ramah. He's just like, I don't get it. Right? Hannah's singing praise songs. El- is like, I, I don't even know. I don't even know. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. We can find joy in this miserable, fallen, difficult world when we choose to give everything that God has given us already, when we choose to give him our great, greatest blessings. We dedicate those things to him and say, God, here it is. If you want it, come and take it. If you want me to continue, have it. It goes for everything. Your finances, your home, your, your whatever small blessings you have, your your belongings. Your your significant other, your spouse, your children, your friends, your family, your church. God, here is what I have. Here is what I hold most precious. Use it as you will. And when you do that, sometimes God will say, okay. And he takes it and you go, wow, what just happened? And sometimes, more often than not, God says, okay. Thank you for, for making me first in your life. And he'll have us... Work with our children, obviously. He'll, he'll have us work at our job. He'll, he'll use us to bring his love and joy into the places where we are. Because you have to remember, we're Christians. We are followers of Christ. We are ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to take the hope of the gospel. Wherever we go into the workplace, we are to bring the hope of Jesus that, yes, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and he rose again, and he is coming again, and we're not always going to live in this miserable world. We take it wherever we go, and we take the gospel wherever we go. We take Jesus wherever we go. And when we dedicate whatever we love most, whatever the biggest blessing we have in our life is, something counterintuitive happens. You would think, oh, I'm lost. Never going to happen. Never going to find happiness again. If I give God what I find most blessing in this life, if I, find, if I give God what I love the most in this world, I'm going to be miserable. But something supernatural happens. God the Holy Spirit fills you with his joy. And I think God gives us a comfort knowing that he is in control, we are not he loves us and he cares for us and he'll carry us through whatever darkness we face if you want to find joy dedicate your greatest blessings to god if you want to find joy take all that you are even your own life and say take my life and let it be consecrated lord to thee take my life it is yours take everything that i love it is yours do with it what you will And you will experience the supernatural joy of Christ. The way Hannah felt it. My heart exalts the Lord because I rejoice in your salvation. Send it all to God. And he'll send you all of his joy. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. Help us to be like your servant Hannah. Father, you have filled us up with so many blessings, even in the midst of the difficulties. Help us not to hold on to everything, even our own life, thinking that that will make us happy, realizing that, Father, when we give it all to you, you give us your joy. You're not an angry God who wants to crush us. You're a loving God who wants us to experience you and to help others to experience you. As we are about to take the Lord's Supper together, help us to realize this only happens through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He shed his blood for us on the cross. He rose again and sent us the Holy Spirit. And as we walk in obedience to Christ, the Holy Spirit can fill us with your joy, Father God. I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper today, we will give everything we are to you. And as we experience the forgiveness that comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we will also experience your joy. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, Please visit us at fbcterrytown.org